and welcome to Focal Point, the IMV Imaging Podcast. I'm Harriet, your host, and I'm joined by the usual members of the IMV clinical team. So we've got a big hello to Laura. Hello, everyone. And we have Sam. Hi, everybody. And Amy. Hi, guys. This month, we welcome Dr. David McKenzie to the podcast. David is an RCVS advanced practitioner in emergency critical care and cardiology, and in addition, also holds a certificate in small animal medicine. He has previously held the position of Principal Vet at Vets Now Aberdeen and during the years of 2014 to 2018, divided his time between running the ECC service for Vets Now, leading the cardiology referral service at at Chester Gates Referrals and providing a medicine referral service to Alba Vets in Dunfermline and Kirkcaldy in Scotland. In 2018, he moved to East Coat Referrals in Swindon, where he set up the ECC service in ICU and continued as head of the service there from that time on, before more recently joining more referrals in Northumberland as their ECC and cardiology specialist. So welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I know I've given a really brief overview of your incredible journeys of that so far, but please tell us more how your career into ECC started. Um, yeah, that was a really sort of, yeah, I was looking back, just listening to you um, talking about my career. Yeah, it's been an interesting sort of what people I think nowadays call a squiggly career. But um, I think, um, I mean, I've always been interested in, in ECC, um, but I started off being interested in cardiology, which is why I did my cardiology certificate. Um, and it's really that that sort of led me into diagnostic imaging and um and ultrasound in particular, but I've always been interested in ECC. And basically, as soon as the uh, ECC certificate was available, I sort of went for that and did that after my medicine certificate. Um, and I guess it's something that's just always really interested me. I like the I like both ends of the the sort of ECC spectrum. So I like the the fast paced adrenaline rushed uh, emergency side of things, but I also really like the the intense critical care ICU side of things as well. Um, and yeah, and that's that's really always been my sort of real interest um, in veterinary medicine. That's just fantastic. I mean, it's you've had such an interesting career, and especially how it all started really with an interest in cardiology before moving on to ECC. Is there a particular reason why you decided not to pursue down the internal medicine route? Yeah, I mean, I was I did I did the medicine certificate, and I was all because I think it was a very nice compliment, and it certainly helped me a lot with um, the sort of cardiology cases, and helped me a lot with the ECC cases. But I think for me, a lot of internal medicine is very much sort of workups of chronic cases, which is not really where my true interest lies. As I say, I like the I like the the fast paced adrenaline rush of the true emergency cases so when I saw the medicine case it was always the the acute cases that I was always much more interested in Um, and like I say I like the the critical care as well and I think the sort of internal medicine sort of falls in the middle of that and my interest sort of lies at at either end of the sort of spectrum of the emergency cases and the critical cases but not so much the the sort of chronic workups in in internal medicine. Uh, Hi David. Just wondering with your um, certificate in small animal medicine, does that give you a sort of more more of a unique insight into endocrinological emergencies or that have been um, covered more in your sort of ECC certificate? Um, yeah, I think I think it probably does, actually. I think that the thing about medicine is that it it gives you a much sort of deeper insight into the, the sort of body systems and things that are going on. You do cover a lot of it in ECC, but I've certainly found my medicine certificate to be very complementary and, and it's just been really helpful 
um, in in backing up um, both cardiology and ECC. So all of them have been very sort of intermeshing, if you like, and and have been helpful in in the cases that I've seen. It's really interesting. ECC is um, one of those things I sort of feel since leaving university has has kind of grown in kind of. I don't know whether the word is sort of sort of stature or popularity and that it's something that more and more people have sort of this specialism has developed a lot. And especially over the last few years, diagnostic imaging has become more and more a, a part of ECC and a kind of integral part of it, um, especially with the use of kind of ultrasound and its applications to triage. How, how have you seen the sort of the use of diagnostic imaging sort of change in the ECC field over, over your time and um, kind of work at working? in that specialism mm. yeah i mean i think it's changed massively so just just taking the first part of your question i mean ecc is a sort of discipline in its own right is, is a very young discipline um the european college is is very young and you know like i say the the rcvs certificate was has only been available for a very short time and i think before ECC, I think anesthesia, we're doing a lot of the, the stuff that ECC people do now. So it is a young discipline in its own right. As regards diagnostic imaging, I mean, that has come on massively. Uh, I mean, I graduated in 2003 and the, the papers on AFAST and TFAST and what we now call POCUS imaging, you know, hadn't there hadn't been really anything published at all when I graduated. And since that time, it, it's, it's exploded, um, I think. And um, terms that you know I didn't even recognize when I graduated and now people when you talk about AFAST, TFAST and POCUS I think pretty much everyone now knows what you're talking about so I think I think yeah I mean the, the use of diagnostic imaging particularly ultrasound as sort of point of care has has completely taken off um, such that I mean again like when I graduated a lot of practices didn't even have their own ultrasound and now I think it's unheard of really for for a first opinion practice not to even have you know at least a basic ultrasound machine and I think people have uh, because of the amount of work that's been done by some sort of key opinion leaders in this field I think that has trickled down now into first opinion and uh, I think more and more people are, are just aware of just how useful ultrasound in particular is for assessing uh, emergency cases in a sort of very rapid, non-invasive way. Yeah, um, I think this might be one of your phrases that I've picked up through um, some of the webinars that you've done for us in the past. But um, I remember mm -hmm. the um, description of the ultrasound transducer being an extension of your stethoscope to be able to sort of visualize what you're hearing within the thorax and whenever you're doing sort of a TFAST or a, a vet blue kind of scan um, and I, I use that phrase quite a lot on our um, on our CPD courses with thoracic scanning it's it's quite good actually and I always say to people the more that you do with ultrasound the more you get you get your probe out and get get going and get some pictures um, as part of your diagnostic investigations even if it's a five minute scan the more you'll want to do do you find that 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 rings true for you as well yeah that's that's definitely true I mean I, I sort of do popularize that phrase um, that you can you I don't think I certainly didn't invent it um, I'm, I've read it somewhere but um, certainly this idea that you know historically if you want to examine taking that example the chest of, a, of an animal you would typically put the stethoscope on and I think the realization that actually 
that's a pretty insensitive tool for diagnostic diagnosing um, thoracic disease. I mean, if it's if it's avert, you can hear things, but it's actually very insensitive when the the ultrasound probe is is massively more sensitive for picking up things compared to the human ear. So I think I think certainly that is a very justified sort of way of looking at it. But I say it certainly wasn't my my own phrase, although I do popularize it. Um, but but yeah, I mean examining the chests of animals in particular using ultrasound is, is something that's really come on in recent years from people who were initially sort of, well, is it likely to be useful because ultrasound is not very good at seeing through air in the chest? And actually people have, have actually turned that on its head really. And actually, you know, you can you can use those principles to get some really, really helpful diagnostic images. So diagnosing pneumothorax, pleural effusion, pulmonary contusions, alveolar fluid, all of these things that people were initially, I think, sceptical uh, as to whether you'd actually be able to make use of ultrasound. We, we now realise that actually putting the probe on an animal's chest when you're trying to, you know, diagnose those particular type of conditions uh, is actually far more sensitive for picking them up than a stethoscope. So, yeah. I know there are a lot of terms now which are, are used, such as TFAST and AFAST and POCUS, but what is the difference between them? You know, I know initially we always knew of TFAST and AFAST and then POCUS came around and now there's that blue. It'd be really good to just be able to differentiate which term we should be using and what mm. each of these terms mean. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, as you know, there's been a, in in the States at least, there's been a trademark put on the, the TFAST and AFAST, but there's certainly terms that people... Uh, use so I guess just going back to the the fast which is focus abdominal um, with sonography for trauma um, that that concept of T for trauma in the fast scan um, has has very much sort of branched out to trauma triage and tracking so when I when I do my my sort of webinars and things it's like I say well yeah the original papers were looking at the use of fast scanning um, for trauma but actually we, we now realize that it's so useful for triage of a whole range of conditions not just limited to trauma cases um, and then the tracking part is is very much that you know you scan a dog but in in critical care and emergency medicine it's a very dynamic thing and things change very rapidly um, and what I always emphasize to people is you know you, you scan but you need to go back and you need to scan again and scan again because it's a way of, of, of very sensitively monitoring your patient is is what you've seen on admission is it deteriorating or is it getting better integrating the clinical signs with what you're seeing on the scan um so so that's where you know i think the t of the of the of the fast scan has, has blossomed um and so we've got the the abdominal scan a fast and then we've got the thoracic scan t fast so that's really the meaning of those terms um and again there's a whole sort of um as you say there's a whole sort of vocabulary that's developed from that so um we've got a fast and t fast the vet blue the bedside lung ultrasound exam is really an extension of the TFAST. So the TFAST was very much sort of just putting the probe on the chest in a um, in in the sort of most dorsal position if you were looking for pneumothorax, and a more ventral position if you were looking for um, pleural effusion or looking for pulmonary contusions or fluid in the lungs. And and what's developed now is just as we would plonk the stethoscope on different locations of the chest to see whether there is a difference in say if we can hear crackles in one quadrant but hear nothing or hear air in a different quadrant that helps us with the differential diagnosis. 
the extension of this idea of the ultrasound probe being more sensitive than the stethoscope, people have said it is logical that actually you would use the probe in the same way, putting the probe on different parts of the chest to see whether you can um, see differences on the screen in different locations, and that would um, narrow your differential. So I guess the most the most sort of classic example of this would be this idea of what we call tri lung versus wet lung, which is where you, you put the probe on a certain part of the chest and you, you see just normal, uh, the appearance of a normal air filled chest. And then you move the stethoscope around, sorry, move the probe around just like a stethoscope until you say come to a point where you can see the, the appearance of alveolar fluid, which we call, which appears as what we call beelines on the scan. Um, and so you, you build up this sort of differential picture of dry lung in certain quadrants and wet lung in other quadrants. And, and that can help us to say with the differentials. I mean, the most obvious example of that would be an aspiration pneumonia, where you would expect in, in a textbook world, you would expect to see dry lung in the sort of chordodorsal quadrants. But as you move the probe down into the cranioventral quadrants, you would expect again in a textbook world, you would expect to pick up a wet lung, which appears as beelines on, on, the, on the probe. So it's really an extension of the, the vet blue is very much an extension of the, of the, the, the TFAST. And the, the, the term POCUS, so point of care ultrasound, I think emphasizes that unlike radiography, where if you've got critical animals, moving them into radiography and having to sedate them and having to restrain them, whatever is associated with, with risk, with ultrasound, uh, particularly with the, the smaller and portable machines that we now have, you can bring the ultrasound machine to the patient, so very much a bedside test. So this is where this idea of point of care ultrasound has emerged, and it just emphasizes the usefulness of, of being able to triage these patients at the bedside and being able to, tr to track them at the bedside by bringing the machine to them rather than bringing them to the machine. So I think this is where, where all this terminology has come from, and it, it emphasizes the usefulness in particular of ultrasound in the assessment of these patients. That's a fantastic um, description um, of those different kind of abbreviations that people use. I was wondering, David, in your opinion, are there any are there any pitfalls or, or things that people should avoid with some of these examinations, or is is there anything that that you see commonly sort of common mistakes to avoid in kind of in kind of doing these types of exams? Um, I think there aren't many pitfalls because the the beauty of ultrasound is it's you know completely non invasive. So, you know, you just literally put the probe on the skin of the animal and that's it. I guess um, I guess there are pitfalls in it. Like many things, it, it does take a degree of training and a degree of learning. What has been shown with ultrasound and there's there's papers on this in the human medical literature that the the learning curve is is very rapid. So people can go from never having picked up a probe before to being able to diagnose pneumothorax, um, pulmonary contusions, fluid in the abdomen in particular, this type of thing in, in a matter of hours. It, 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 it's a very sort of quick learning curve. So I guess in terms of the main pitfalls, I think one, once you've done the training, there are, there are very few. Um, and the, the thing about ultrasound is usually you get very few false positives. So for example, if you're scanning an abdomen and you see fluid, free fluid in an abdomen, um, then there's free fluid in the abdomen and, and it's very difficult to get a false positive on that. It's it's much easier with ultrasound, I guess, to get false negative. So, you know, if you don't do the scan in a sort of systematic proper way, you, you can miss fluid in the abdomen, particularly if it's a small amount. 
um, in the chest in particular, sometimes that the, the so-called glide sign, which is normal, can sometimes be very um, subtle. Uh, unless an animal is very dysmic. So it's much easier to get false negatives. So it does require a degree of training. But I think what, what I've seen and what's been really sort of encouraging to me, having done a lot of ultrasound training over the years, is just seeing people go from pretty much zero experience, zero confidence with using ultrasound to at the end of a day's course thinking, wow, this is, you know, this is amazing and, and really having picked up on it really quickly. Um, and then it's just a matter of going back to their to their their sort of practice and practicing, practicing. Um, but I say the learning curve is is very rapid. So I think for a lot of people, I would just say once you've had a training course and you've been shown the basics of ultrasound scanning, it's just a matter of going and taking every opportunity that you can have in in practice to to just get as much experience as you can. Just I said to people, you know, when when a bitch spay comes in, just you know they're getting, they're being clipped up anyway. Put the probe on the abdomen and just just get a practice of doing your AFOS scan. Um, and that's really, you know, hopefully people that for people, that's a take home message. And, and that's what people have gone off and done. And I say now so many people are much more confident in using ultrasound um, because they're just using it more in their daily practice. It's it's really nice to hear you say that, David, because um, we know that feeling ourselves. We really enjoy what we do. We really enjoy the education that we provide and seeing people go from feeling very unconfident and nervous at the beginning of an ultrasound training session to feeling really empowered and, and seeing them learn towards the end of the day is a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Um, and I, it's obviously a wonderful mm -hmm. feeling for them too. Um, I was just wondering um, on the subject of teaching other people um, to do ultrasound, particularly the POCUS scanning, um, if you can sort of describe the, the nurse's role in, in the practices that you have headed up um, with regards to ultrasound, particularly in the, the trauma triage and tracking aspect of it. Yeah, and and as you probably know, um, I actually do a whole course for Improve International, which is which is purely for nurses, um, and uh, yeah, and I think they've really really enjoyed it and benefited from it. I think the main role of, and this is where I think you know the regulations come in in terms of what nurses are allowed to do, but I think in terms of ultrasound, um, I think the key area is is triage. So, um, and what I always say to the nurses is, well, you know. A, a sick or very injured or, or traumatized or whatever animal comes in, there may not be, uh, and often there isn't a vet immediately available. But I say actually a lot of the time there doesn't need to be because um, a lot of, you know, I've done a lot of work in ECC and the, the nurse's role in triage is absolutely invaluable because a lot of the time, you know, I will be dealing with another patient and another emergency will come in. I won't be able to immediately sort of down tools and then deal with the next emergency. So I really, really rely on the triage of the nurses to, to come to me and say, such and such has come in, I've triaged them and yes, they, they're fine. You know, that means I can sort of relax a little bit. Conversely, they may come and say, I've just triaged this animal and I, th I really think you need to come and see this one now. And what I've been doing with, with Improve International is as part of that triage process, so obviously getting the stethoscope out, looking at the, the mucous membrane color, listening to the chest, listening to the heart rate, getting pulse quality, building into that triage process using ultrasound um so you know animal comes in really injured and then the nurse puts the probe on the uh, on the chest puts the probe on the abdomen and then they can immediately come to me and say such and such has come in they're collapsed they're pale they're tachycardic and i think they've got a pericardial effusion you know and it's obviously you know with the regulations it's for me to make the diagnosis but they can come to me and say i think they've got a pericardial effusion because they've been trained how to spot pericardial effusions and that immediately 
amazingly helps the triage process because it allows me to sort of factor in how urgent is this patient, how quickly do I need to come and assess them. Um, and the same thing with the abdomen, they'll, they'll say I've triaged and they'll give me the details and signalment and everything and I've put the probe on the abdomen and the abdomen is, is full of fluid. So it really aids in their ability to triage the patient and to, to help me and help them with the prioritisation of, of which animals we need to see first and how sick a particular animal is. So, so the triage bit is is critical but the tracking part is critical as well because um, we will often have when I used to work for vets now we'll often have patients that come in for post-operative care and post-operative monitoring and the same principle applies a lot of that post-operative care is being carried out by the nurses but by building in ultrasound as part of their tracking then they can use that tool to monitor an animal so a classic one would be an animal that say for example had a uh, an enterotomy to put remove a foreign body and where can where concerned of you know septic peritonitis would be the main thing that we would be concerned about so they can they can triage the animal, see if there's any fluid in the abdomen, but in particular track that animal over time to see if, if there's an increase in the amount of fluid. So it just gives them an extra tool for monitoring the patient as well. So I think I think um, triage and tracking are, are the two main things where I think nurses can really play uh, and do play, hopefully after they've been on the courses, do play a really big role um, in using ultrasound to help them do their job more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. I think the role of ultrasound um, in the nurse's role has been quite underutilised uh, historically, hasn't it? Is that something that you're seeing or getting the impression that is mm, changing yeah. over time as ECC develops? It is. Um, I think it's been slower than perhaps I would like, um, because like I say, I think I think from what I've seen, nurses come on the courses, they really enjoy it and they, they do feel empowered and it is a new thing. And I think the fact that they've signed up for the course in the first place means that they have, you know, motivation and interest to do that. Um, I think what it comes down to, though, is what opportunities they then have when they go back to their practice situation to actually you know get involved and, and and do the scanning and I suspect a lot of that obviously comes down to the type of practice they work in and you know what the vets allow them to do but I would hope that for, for most of the nurses they, they go back to practice having been on the training courses with a with a newfound enthusiasm and I think it, it's it having the opportunities when they get back to practice to be able to put all the stuff that they've learned um, into practice so but yeah so I think I think it's probably it has been slower um than than I would like I think there probably is still some from what I get feedback from the nurses in certain practices there is a little bit of resistance from vets because they sort of say well you know you're not allowed to make a diagnosis and I say well we're not asking you to do that we're sort of building this in as part of your triage so say to take the example of a dog that comes in with an abdomen full of full of blood let's say if they've got a bleeding splenic mass or something like that no one's sort of asking you to make the diagnosis as such but you could, even if there was a lot of fluid in an abdomen, just by palpation alone, you can miss that. So by building in ultrasound to your triage, then it's another it's another sort of tool in your armory to be able to go to the vet and say, I've, you know, I've done a scan um, and I think there's an abdomen full of fluid. So you're not making a diagnosis, but you are really utilizing that in triage. So I think I would, I would definitely, definitely like to see much more of this. And I think it is only a matter of time um, before nurses do more of this. As I always say on the courses, if you look at human medicine, uh, a huge amount of uh, scanning in human medicine is not done by doctors. It's done by um, specially trained sonographers, many of whom were nurses who have moved into sonography. And I don't see any reason why veterinary medicine shouldn't go the same way.
It's interesting you say that because I was just about to ask you, because we get a lot of interest from nurses wanting to pursue a diagnostic imaging certificate, um, Mm. which isn't currently available for them. I think the only one that does allow them to do a bit of ultrasound is the ECC certificate. But as we know, especially with, you know, a lot more practices installing CT, majority of the time it's the nurses running the machines and they are doing more and more ultrasound. Is there a potential for, you know, a diagnostic imaging certificate for nurses in the future, do you think? I, I see absolutely no reason why not. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that would be a really good thing. And 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 as you say, that is the way that human medicine has gone. Um, I don't see any reason at all why nurses couldn't be trained up. And as you say, a lot of them are running the CTs and, and what have you. So why they shouldn't be able to get a sort of recognised qualification, I think that would be a great thing. I mean, Improve do, it's part of their uh, nursing certificate. So there's a nursing certificate in surgery, a nursing certificate in medicine, um, and there are spe- uh, specific diagnostic imaging modules within the NCERT. But yes, you're right, there isn't a a standalone certificate in diagnostic imaging for nurses as yet. I see no reason why there shouldn't be, though. I think it's something that will almost certainly come for the future. I mean, there's a huge amount that they do in practice. I think most of the places that I've locumed, the nurses will lead the radiography um, and they lead the CT. If If you've set up a good system and you've got um you know a a small bunch of people within your practice that are the sort of the ct leaders or the ct experts they're usually going to be the nurses as well Mm -hmm. um and with ultrasonography as well i think there's actually an enormous amount that they do so i think that would be a fantastic certificate for them yeah no i agree yeah i I agree and as you say a lot of the time they are leading it and they do a much better job of leading it than the vets um and, and they get really into it um and yeah, absolutely. Why I, I think it, it's it would be good to have that recognised with a specific qualification. Yeah, for sure. So I just wanted to come back to um, sort of the using nurses um, as obviously part of your checks within a sort of busy out of hours hospital. The way I'm picturing it working for the the fast scanning for. Um, uh tracking is um would you kind of include a tfast or an afast scan on your uh check sheet so we're doing obviously your your temperature pulse mucous membranes respiration blood pressure etc and then a, a tfast or an afast scan is that sort of how it's been working for you um that's a really good question because and that makes me think where it's not something that we have incorporated into our hospital sheets um, as a sort of standard thing that's printed on it, um, as you say, in terms of temperature, pulse, respiration, it's not something that we've actually incorporated, but that's a really good idea. And I think that's that's made me think now. Um, yeah, that's something that I could think about incorporating into our, we've actually redesigned our hospital sheets very recently, um, and that wasn't on it. Um, and that's really made me think that maybe maybe it should be. So yeah, I will, I will do some thinking about that. Just leaning on from what Amy, Amy said, when you are tracking, you know, either abdominal effusion or um, pleural effusion, is there, do you do it so many, every so many hours or do you just go by clinical signs of the animal or do you have a set time that you will recheck whether there's any further effusion present? So so that actually all, uh, depends very much on the case. The sort of, the literature says, it has this phrase sort of, you know, you should re- be rechecking within four hours but I always say to people I said you know it does depend on on how worried you are about the case and I think that you have to always integrate what you're seeing with ultrasound with the other clinical signs so um, I guess the classic example would be a dog that's been hit by a car that comes in you scan the abdomen um, and there's a say a a moderate amount of fluid in the abdomen you tap it and it's blood 
um, but the, the, the dog has recently come in. So you go through the sort of process of stabilization with fluids and, and other treatment. And as I say that, you know, what what will often happen is is the, the dog will go in one of two directions. It'll either appear to get better and most of them will. You know, they'll respond positively to fluids um, and all the vital parameters that we're monitoring will improve. And as I say, built into that is is the scan. So you'll have two things. You'll have the, the subjective impression of the amount of fluid in the abdomen, but you'll also have this thing, which I think a lot of people are familiar with, the abdominal fluid score, where you, you score um, a zero or one, depending on whether you've got fluid in the specific AFAR sites and so what you what you would hope to have is a dog that comes in has the initial triage which which includes ultrasound you identify fluid in the abdomen and then you go through the resuscitation process and part of that uh, tracking of that is as I say the dog getting clinically better but you would hope that what you're seeing in the abdomen would follow that and that the amount of fluid subjectively would be the same and then start to come down and the abdominal fluid score would stay the same and then start to come down the converse of that is a dog that comes in hit by a car where you do resuscitation, but the dog is not responding as you would expect. You give more fluids and the dog's still not responding. And then you start to think, OK, well, why is this dog not responding to sort of standard resuscitation? And one of the, the sort of very uh, good ways of answering that is you scan the abdomen and on triage. And then what you find is as time elapses, you're finding that the amount of fluids sub subjectively judged appears to be going up and or the AFS score seems to be going up. And in that situation where a dog is, is deteriorating clinically and the amount of fluid and things in the abdomen is building up, would, would strongly lead you to suspect that the reason why the animal's not responding is they've got an ongoing bleed. And actually, th those are the ones that may ultimately become uh, ones requiring surgery or surgical exploration, as opposed to the majority uh, which don't. So um, I think that that's where the ultrasound um, tracking comes in. Um, in terms of how often you do that, as I say, it depends on the case. A dog that's deteriorating rapidly, you would want to be scanning much more frequently, whereas a dog that seems to be stable could be could be scanned less frequently. Um, and I think that goes for the, for the chest as well, that uh, you, you do a particular intervention. So you may say beelines on an animal with congestive heart failure, you give frusamide, and then you want to integrate hopefully what you would expect to see is an improvement in breathing rate and effort and hopefully you would see that the number of uh, the number and the intensity of beelines in the chest come down as well so um i think yeah it, come, it depends on the case and i always joke to people say it does depend a little bit on your degree of paranoia as well so if you're very paranoid like me you'll be scanning them every half an hour or so but um yeah it, it you have to judge the case and integrate ultrasound into your overall clinical assessment just continuing talking about uh, with the sort of ultrasound and using it in the ECC setting. If if you were if I was somebody who is wanting to get started with with using ultrasound for my cases, just from from a purely kind of practical point of view, is there a way that you like to have the systems sort of set up, or the, a place you like to have them ready, or a form you like to have them in to make it as easy as possible? I'm I'm assuming in your clinics the ultrasound machine isn't in a corner cupboard in a consulting room. It, it's some it's somewhere different. So if if we're sort of getting started, mm -hmm. how how do we make how would you what were your kind of advice for some 
somebody sort of making it as accessible as possible and, and beginning beginning their journey with it. Mm-hmm. So I, I would re- I recommend I say this on the courses I would recommend always having the machine switched on ready to go at the start of shift because you're just much more likely to use it if you don't have to go through the faff of of setting it up and and everything when the case comes in have it already set up. Um, there's various ways of scanning, but I recommend that you, you have the machine and you have your you have a dedicated area with a dedicated table um, and a chair. Basically, I always recommend sitting down for ultrasound scanning. And if you've got the, the table and the chair and the machine all set up ready in a sort of dedicated area, then, as I say, you're much more likely to use it. Um, and a lot of the ultrasound, the way that we do the ultrasound has has evolved over the years. So the original uh, AFAST and TFAST scanning described animals being scanned in lateral recumbency, which which I still sort of use for people who are just starting out, um, teaching them the sort of traditional method. But so much has come on now that we're actually, uh, you know, very rarely are we clipping the fur. Um, we're just putting spirit and gel on and literally just putting the probe over key locations with the animal in a in a standing or a, or a sternal or a sitting position. So it actually becomes much easier than it than it I guess it used to be because you literally just have to sit them on the table um, and just you don't even have to clip them. You just put spirit and gel on and put the probe on. So that makes it much more accessible. But I think the key thing is having the machine switched on, ready to go, having the table clear of clutter. So when the animal first comes in, you can put them straight onto the table that's right beside the ultrasound machine. Um, do your physical exam. Let's say, assume it's a small dog or a cat. Do your physical exam with the animal actually on the table and then go directly from your physical exam to your ultrasound exam without needing to move the animal. So it does become this idea of uh, and it, uh, people say that ultrasound should be an extension of your physical exam. And I think by having the, the sort of triage area, the triage table where you're going to initially put the animal right beside having the ultrasound machine right beside that, I think automatically encourages you to immediately, almost without thinking about it, to do your physical exam, then go straight on to ultrasound. So so that's what I would say, have it, have it set up and ready without other stuff sort of clutter on it to plonk the animal on the table and be able to go directly to your ultrasound. And David, what about these new um, handheld units um, that obviously um, have, have developed in the last few years and are becoming increasingly available and I think increasingly used, especially in um, ECC? Is that something you've used yourself or had experience of? Yeah, these are amazing. Um, we have literally just bought one for our practice about uh, last week, actually, we got one. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but it's the, it's the device that we got. Um, and the quality of the image is amazing. Um, and again, thinking back, it makes me sound really old, but when I think about how the first ultrasound machine I got uh, was so big, it sort of took up half the room. Um, and they, these huge beasts on wheels that are really difficult to move about. Um, we've got smaller and smaller and smaller. And now, as you say, we've got to completely wireless handheld devices that uh, transmit their picture directly. So we've got an iPad that it transmits the picture directly to an iPad. So there's no wires and nothing. They're completely wireless hands-free. And the quality of the image is is amazing. So yeah, so coming to your question, in terms of ECC, just having one of these machines makes it even easier. So I still recommend, you know, back, back, back to the previous question, still recommend having a dedicated area where you can put the animal on the table. But yes, having your handheld machine, the little docking device right beside the table, so you can put the, the handheld device directly onto the animal, I think makes it even easier to do point of care ultrasound. Um, and as I say to people, if people are looking into buying uh, a specific ECC type 
um, ultrasound machine, these handheld, uh, the, the image quality on these handheld devices is, is, is mind blowing compared to, you know, what we were seeing even in the, in the sort of mobile machine several years ago. And certainly for, for diagnosing um, ECC type conditions, I mean, they're probably still not up to the standard of really detailed, what I call internal medicine scans, but for the type of scanning, AFAST, TFAST, POCUS, all the things you need to see on those type of exams, they're, they're really, really good. Yeah. So I would, I would recommend them. Yeah, it is astounding, isn't it? What can be fitted into, um, essentially just, it's just the size of a probe, isn't it? When you compare it to the size and then weight of yes. the ultrasound yeah. machines that we're used to mm-hmm. lugging around yes. so hopefully it, is, it does make it much more accessible mm-hmm. um, and increasingly much more sort of patient side um, uh, investigatory yes. technique isn't it mm-hmm. um, but yeah we, we're just bringing out um, a, a GE version so it's the B-Scan Air which is actually it's two probes in one so there's convex on one side and linear on the other oh, wow. I think the handheld portable ultrasound machines are a real game changer because they make your sort of within kennels um, ward kind of bedside scans just so much handier to do. Um, And you can even use them in your consult room. You know, if you're when um, you've got a bit of experience about you and you've faced with a clinical problem that you're fairly sure what the problem is, you can demonstrate to an owner even, Mm. oh, I've got a fluid thrill in this abdomen. Um, I'm going to just show them what I can see or pretty sure that this um, elderly King Charles Cavalier is in fairly advanced congestive heart failure. I'm just going to show them this dog's left atrium, perhaps, although we'll take a bit of explanation, but it's, um, it's a real game changer for for showing people what we're seeing and it would be fantastic for pregnancy scans and pyometra scans too but mm-hmm. i think um principally super useful in wards and would definitely um further strengthen the role of the the nurses in ultrasonography because there's there's pretty much kind of no reason not to be scanning mm. very much more with a portable a portable yeah. system yeah no i totally agree and i think that's um as i say we've only literally just got one last week but i think you're absolutely right this this concept of um ultrasound being an extension of the physical exam is is completely enabled um i think when people get to the stage where they've got the handheld device in the consulting room it would become second nature as part of your physical exam while, while just doing uh, you know, a routine uh, consultation to then follow up, just pick up the handheld machine and, and run it over the chest and the abdomen. Because again, I always say to people that sometimes with, with a lot of dogs in particular, abdominal ultrasound sorry abdominal palpation can be really unrewarding because you know they're they're big or or they're they're tense or they're they're overweight or whatever and actually you find that palpating a dog's abdomen sometimes yields very little information so whereas putting a probe on a dog's abdomen suddenly you can see the liver you can see the spleen you can see the actual organs inside and i think you're absolutely right that having when it gets to the stage when we've got a, a handheld ultrasound machine in the consulting room it'll become normal just to put it on to augment what your hands are telling you. And I think our hands will, I mean, they'll, we'll always need physical exam, but it will seem almost a little bit old fashioned probably in the future, just to rely on physical exam when you've got something that can actually give you much greater insight to what's going on as well. But I completely agree with the wards as well. This, this, it really does take the concept of poker scanning to to the level that, that it should be at, where it's just so easy to to examine the animals in the wards. And as you say, that'll be something that the, the nurses will be doing as part of their patient monitoring. So so totally, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. These systems, they're, they're really a, a game changer in a lot of a lot of these areas. But we, where does this leave um, sort of X-ray and CT in, in an ECC setting? Uh, have, has their use has their use changed? Or are they still as important? Or has as your approach to these other modalities is it is it different now than it was? So I think they'll always have their role because I think they are complementary and I think there will always be things that you will still, as things stand at the moment, be able to see better on X-ray than than you can on ultrasound. But certainly I would say uh, X-ray has become, in, in ECC cases, has become much less important because so many things that previously we could only examine using x-ray we're now doing with ultrasound and we're not feeling the need to to even resort to x-ray because we're getting the answers that we need from ultrasound so i think x-ray has become a lot less important for a lot of things as i think ct is different because ct is is great we use ct a lot in an ecc setting for for assessment of trauma cases so um it just gives us a whole body overview um really quickly of a whole animal that's come in with with trauma so that we can rapidly assess things like have they got broken ribs have they got a broken pelvis or, or whatever in addition to what we're seeing with the ultrasound so typically what we would do is do the uh, poker scan so do a quick AFAS TFAS to get an overview of immediately life-threatening situations so I don't know for example is there a pneumothorax that needs draining um, is there a chest full of fluid in a dog with congestive heart failure this type of thing and then having got a degree of stability or stability assessment with the animal we would typically in a trauma case then move on to ct to like i say get a whole body overview so i think ultrasound is still complementary to the other modalities um but i think it has replaced x-ray in a lot of situations it's interesting um you say using ct for trauma cases uh, mostly because we've just had a discussion about this um between ourselves at what level of stability do you have your patient before you put them into the ct because obviously if you have a trauma patient you're not wanting to rush to sedate them to put them in the ct um so you would i would imagine you stabilize them first before progressing forwards yeah, I mean, again, it, it does depend on the case um, to, to an extent. Obviously, we'd want them to be stable and we'd address sort of any life-threatening abnormalities, um, as obviously, immediately, particularly if we've picked up things on ultrasound that weren't immediately apparent on, on physical exam. So we certainly want to get them as stable as possible. But it we certainly would do um, a lot of our CTs with just sedation alone and there's certainly lots of very safe sedation protocols that we would use for trauma and and very sick animals so a lot of the time we can we can do ct because the, the machine we've got is so quick um we can do ct without needing to use anesthesia um in fact a lot of the time we particularly in cats we've got this sort of uh this sort of perspex box that they just have to sit in we can supply them with oxygen and and it's the I say the the ct machine runs over them so quickly that we can often get ct images of of really good quality without even sedation so it, it does depend upon the case but a lot of the time we'll we'll get images so quickly easily and safely that we will often move to ct after we've done the initial ultrasound exam to you know to further the sort of complementary imaging of the patient i was just wondering david where you stand on the um the whole animal dogogram catagram trauma case what your approach is to to picking what you image um when you're doing a ct for a trauma case so I, I guess this is where CT, and particularly the type of CT machine we've got, uh, encourages you, I guess I was going to say encourages you to be a little bit lazy because it's so easy to do a dogogram or a catagram 
that that's probably what we would do because I think particularly with the trauma cases, it may not be immediately obvious what the full extent of the injuries are. So, I mean, at the very least, we, we would do chest and abdomen. Um, if we, I guess we wouldn't necessarily always do the forelimbs if we, and, and the head if we felt that they were absolutely fine. But a, a typical animal that's been hit by a car easily, we, we would definitely want to be assessing the whole of the thorax and the whole of the abdomen. We want to assess the pelvis as well and, and, and possibly the hind limbs if they come in sort of lame or whatever. So we end up doing a sort of semi doggergram or catagram anyway and and, you know i don't think there's anything bad about that you know it's always been historically you know frowned upon as being poor radiographic technique when people were doing x-rays but i don't think the same applies to ct and i think that the in terms of cost benefit analysis the risk of missing something like say if you only did chest and abdomen the risk of missing say a pelvic fracture or, or something like that if you didn't include the pelvis and including the pelvis on a ct scan of chest and abdomen is you know, we're talking extra seconds, literally, to include that part of the body, that typically that is what that is what we would do, because the risk of missing something far outweighs any disadvantages. Um, just got a question regarding um, using x-ray, um, with you uh, discussing x-ray becoming less useful. So um, I'd imagine in your uh, critical care scenarios, you're going to see a lot of dyspneic animals um thinking back to practice uh dyspneic cats for instance that have likely got sort of congestive heart failure plus or minus pleural effusion and and um that sort of thing um where do you stand on the complementary use of x-ray for diagnosis of congestive heart failure are are you finding now that ultrasonography with the um a sort of echo scan and um, examination of the lung fields, would you be confident enough to to make a diagnosis? Because I believe that the the two um, techniques are certainly complementary, but you can get so much information from an ultrasound scanner. Um, how are you sort of uh, going about this this sort of scenario? Yeah, so I think in those cases, I would be completely confident using ultrasound alone to make that diagnosis. So as part of the, the POCUS, um, which we haven't really talked about echo, but part of the focus would be the sort of three main areas. So the abdomen, the chest and the heart, um, the, the sort of automatic thing that I would do in, in a dysmic animal that comes in is, is scan the chest and the, if we see fluid in, so alveolar fluid in the chest, we're seeing beelines in the chest. The immediate question is, is this cardiogenic or non-cardiogenic? And I think, you know, what's been shown is, it's it's so easy and straightforward to answer that question with with then doing a, a pocus echo just a very quick peek at the heart to look at the left atrial size so taking your example of the dyspneic cat i mean if i if i had a dyspneic cat with with fluid on the chest so alveolar fluid b lines that i then scanned the heart and had an enlarged left atrium that for me would be enough um, to say yes this is this is congestive heart failure and that would be you know complete justification for then treating this animal with with frusamide and, and cardiac drugs uh, and then assessing response and this is the beauty of tracking is if if the response wasn't as expected then you yeah you you go back a step and think hang on am i missing something here but certainly that combination of fluid on the chest and enlarged left atrium is is a is for me a very uh, definitive way of saying yes this is this is definitely congestive heart failure until proven otherwise um, and I wouldn't need to use x-ray in that situation at all I would be happy just with with ultrasound 
Um, just to add to that, it's a question that we get fairly often whenever we're doing our echocardiography courses. Um, a lot of the time, if you're doing um, an echo point of care scan, you're not going to be putting the animal in lateral recumbency and you're not going to be wanting to give you know any any sedation at all, really, for, for the vast majority of echo exams, um, acute or otherwise. Um, have you got any kind of tips or tricks for getting a, a decent picture of the of the heart from the right side whenever you've got an animal in sternal recumbency? I'm thinking particularly for a cat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we and we do this a lot. Um, a lot of the time, I mean, if you if you can clip a little bit of fur, then I sort of say, well, you will inevitably get a better picture but again a lot of the time particularly with dyspneic cats just the the sound of the electric clippers is enough to freak them out even more and that's the last thing you need if they're already stressed and dyspneic so i guess um the, the main tips would be as you say coming from the right side is easier because there's a little bit of a cardiac window in between the lungs um, having them sitting in sternal breathing oxygen chilling out maybe a little bit of um, sedation just to help chill them out as well but i think the main things are lots and lots of spirit uh, you say that basically you feel for the apex beat on the right hand side and then having felt the apex beat so you've got a general idea where you're going to pop the probe um, lots of spirit and gel and part the fur and you'll be amazed how just doing that you can part the fur and get a real sort of window through the fur directly onto the skin you can sort of see the skin having parted it um, and then basically just putting the probe on um, in that position, just it, it, it can be aligned however you want, because once you put it on, you then have to rotate it a little bit to get a good image. But putting it on where you can feel the apex beat on the right side is, is the key thing to initially getting the sort of initial location of the heart. Um, and then it's just a matter of a little bit of of movement of the probe, you can get very, very good images, certainly sufficient to be able to make the sort of key judgments that we've been talking about. So certainly key judgments in terms of, is there a pericardial effusion? Is there a pleural effusion? And in particular, getting a, a reasonable view of the left atrium, you can get all of those really easy internal. Um, and then you can go from that to, you can assess the size of the left ventricle, you can assess the, the contractility of the left ventricle. So you can, you can pretty much see all of the key things that you need to see for ECC echo scanning purely from sternal and and we will do that um, routinely we'll we'll do uh, we'll do our emergency cases routinely in sternal um, as you say to avoid putting dyspneic animals in in lateral recumbency that's actually that's a really good tip there thank you David just going on from that have you got any practical advice for vets who may be considering you know full-time career at ECC you know moving away from general practice and wanting to make the jump into emergency critical care um I think you have to really love it um because it's certainly not the easiest discipline to go into in terms of I think that you know the type of cases we see I mean inevitably we see the cases that come in without warning so if you like to sort of have a nice organized day that isn't going to suddenly go pear shaped at the drop of a hat, um, then ECC is not for you. So you've got to be prepared for your whole day just being completely unpredictable. Um, but if you like that, then that's fine. Um, you have to like thinking on your feet and being suddenly confronted with these situations. So you have you have to like that side. But I think um, because ECC and veterinary medicine, very much unlike human medicine, like I was saying at the beginning, deals with the emergency cases, but also deals with the critical care cases, is as well as all of those things, you have to be uh, you have to like dealing with all the cases at the other end of the spectrum. That's to say the most sickest. Um, and inevitably, in terms of 
uh, sort of survival reckonings, you are going to be dealing with the cases that are the illest and therefore the most likely not to make it. And you have to have the sort of mental resilience to be able to sort of deal with that as well. And that's quite difficult. So I think the advice I would give is if you like those elements of veterinary medicine and i've got lots of friends who are vets who absolutely hate them and would never go into ecc in a million years but if you like that type of thing of dealing with the critical cases liking the adrenaline rush having to sort of think quickly on your feet and and deal with whatever you're sort of the front line really whatever sort of the world throws at you um you you will like it and because at the end of the day you you will get a lot of satisfaction that you sort of feel that of those cases that do make it through it's what you did that made the difference. And and that's really, there are a lot of low points, but those are the high points. It's feeling that you're making a difference. And you see animals that come in that are really, really ill, really smashed up, really traumatized. And you know that uh, if you do eventually get to the point where you see them go home, it was because of your intervention. And I think that that's the thing that sort of, if, if that is sort of good enough for, for helping you through the low points, then then yeah, then I think ECC is is for you. I think for me, from personal um, experience of out of hours and stressful situations, um, I think the hardest part for me might be that um, the people factor or the, the human aspect of those sorts of situations, I think would be the hardest thing for me, not the your whole day being thrown into chaos, and nothing being predictable and a, a high sort of a mortality rate. Um, I think the, the way that human emotion gets involved with those presentations, I think would be be quite difficult do you find that that's the case for you um it is difficult and i guess it is more difficult um than many disciplines i always joke that um the orthopedic surgeons have it easy because they're dealing with you know healthy animals and they come in and they they repair their fractured bones and they're, they're always a hero or pretty much always a hero and i think you know if you choose to go in ecc then you know you're not going to be experiencing that type of thing um it is, yeah, it is difficult. I guess it comes with the job. I guess um, maybe I've become a bit hardened to it, having done it over over the years. But it is, it is, a, it is, a, it is part of the job. It is not the easiest part of the job. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it's just something that you do have to deal with. Um, and you know, you have to phone up owners and break bad news to them. And it, it it is part of the job. So yes, you're right. You do have to you do have to factor that in. I guess it's the same for a lot of vets, but I guess more so in ECC that we're dealing with that end of the spectrum of cases. Um, so yeah, it is it is difficult. Um, it is it is part of what we sign up to. Well, that's been a really interesting chat. I'd just like to say a huge thank you to David for joining us on the podcast. I'll let the guys all say goodbye themselves, but remember we'll be back next month for another episode of Focal Point. Until then, please take a look at our social media platforms for lots more great imaging. And it's a goodbye from me. Thank you, David. And bye, everyone. Yeah, thanks, David. That was really, really interesting. Um, We'll see everybody on the next episode. Thank you, David. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, see you all soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.